0: church please turn with me in your bibles again to the gospel of john and we are going to be looking at chapter 14 this morning as we continue along in our study of this account of jesus recent global survey found that 75 percent of young people are frightened of the future in fact 44 percent say they don't want to have children because the future looks so bleak Now those are some really bleak statistics, aren't they? It's disheartening to know that young people are so fearful of the future, but I'm certain it's not just young people who are struggling with fear these days. To some degree, we all are, especially as we consider these past two years and how we've experienced so many unexpected twists and turns. Who would have thought two years ago that the whole world would be turned upside down by a global pandemic, or that vaccines of all things would be tearing families and friends and churches and nations apart, or that unmarked graves of residential school children would be found all over the nation. Or that uh, new laws would would challenge challenge religious freedoms in Canada so quickly and unanimously. Or that Ukraine and Russia would be on the verge of war. Or that inflation would rise 4.8% or that gasoline would almost be at fifty a liter in Saskatchewan. It understandably makes one wonder and worry, what's next? Like, what is going to come down the pipeline in the future? And then, of course, there are all those timeless uncertainties, you know, about future health, future safety, future work, future of our children, That also can cause us to fear, including Christians. And we need to be honest, we are not exempt from this. We too can easily be fearful of the future as we consider all the uncertainties. So what do we do about that? What do we do with that fear? How do we as Christians deal with it? How do we overcome it? Can we overcome fear? Well, as we come to chapter 14 in the Gospel of John, we find Jesus' disciples in a similar situation. They are fearful of the future, which was brought on by Jesus in the previous chapter when he told them some very troubling things about their future. That one of them was going to betray him, that he was soon going away somewhere that they couldn't follow. And we know from other hints he's given, talking about the cross. And also he just said at the end that Peter, one of his Twelve is going to deny him three times. These disturbing revelations would have certainly, understandably, created fear in the disciples. Which is why Jesus now addresses that fear of the future by instructing them, as we're now going to see, to overcome their fear by faith. And specifically by believing and trusting in his promises. As the Apostle John records for us more of Jesus' private instructions to his disciples that took place, as you remember last week we talked about on that final evening of Jesus' life, he tells them here twice in verse 1 and verse 27, at the beginning and the end of the chapter, let not your hearts be troubled. This exhortation really Frames chapter fourteen, and the the three specific promises of Jesus that we'll now see make it possible for Christians to not be troubled, to not be afraid of the future. And the first is this: that as Christians, we can find comfort in the promise of His place. So, verse one and two, we read: "Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God." Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So, in, in many ways and at many times, Jesus had already revealed to his disciples that he was going to die, rise again, and then go back to the Father in heaven. For example, in chapter 10, Jesus said he would lay down his life and then take it up again. And then in chapter three, and 3, chapter 7.33, Jesus said he would soon be going back to God who sent him. Well, now he tells the disciples what he'll be doing when he gets back home to heaven. He will prepare a place for them. And by implication, for all believers in all times. Which is why in his father's house there are many rooms, Jesus says, right? There needs to be many rooms to accommodate us all. Now, in Jesus' day, it was customary for sons to add rooms to their father's house once they were married, which would then form an extended household, all these different rooms or these different dwellings uh, that would be around a common courtyard. And this was most likely what Jesus had in mind here, As the Son of God, he was returning to the Father to prepare a place for his bride, for the church, for us. Something that I think takes on a special significance when we remember that Jesus was a carpenter. That was his trade. All the way up to the beginning of his ministry. I like how one commentator put it, When he was on earth, Jesus was a carpenter. Now that he has returned to glory, he is building his church on earth and building a home for the church in heaven. Now, isn't that a comforting thought? Shouldn't that promise calm our fears about the future? Yes, we don't know what tomorrow will bring. And yes, it could include great trouble. Just clear that up. We are not promised an easy life. As followers of Jesus, free of struggles and suffering. Far from it. But we are promised that in the end of this pilgrimage there is a home in heaven waiting for us that Jesus, our Savior, has been working on now for over 2,000 years. Just think about that. He created the whole world in six days. He's been working on our home in heaven for 2,000 years. And what a difference that makes. It calms our troubled hearts like nothing else. This is why Abraham could, for example, calmly leave everything he knew behind to journey to a foreign land, the land of promise. That God called him to because, as we read in Hebrews eleven, eight 8-10, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. He was looking forward to an even greater promised land, to heaven. It's also why the Apostle Paul could calmly endure so much suffering for Christ and for the sake of the gospel because he knew this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 as D.L. Moody once exhorted take courage we walk in the wilderness today and in the promised land tomorrow but you know that's not even the best part about this first promise of forever home in heaven no it's the, the person who will be in that place that makes this promise so good it's Jesus himself And so our hearts need not be troubled by the future, because in the end, we will be with him forever. Just as we read in verse 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. You know, there's nothing better when you're a young adult than going home. For the holidays. It feels so good and and relaxing to be back in that safe, familiar place you grew grew up in. Uh, Especially if you're struggling with sort of the common unknowns and anxieties and fears of living on your own for the first time. And yet what makes going home especially comforting is that mom and dad are there. Which is why even if your parents, when you're a young adult, uh, move into a new house, What do we do? We still say we're going home for the holidays because home, with its sense of security and serenity, is ultimately where mom and dad are, wherever they are. That's home, and that's where that sense of comfort is. Well, in a similar way, what will make heaven home ultimately is that Jesus is there. And there is no safer, more serene, more secure place than to be in his presence. Which is where it says here he will take us either when we die and our souls go to be with Him, as we read in 2 Corinthians five, where it talks about putting off this earthly tent right, and coming into his presence, or it will happen at the rapture of the church, when we are resurrected into new bodies to go and be with him in that way forever. as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4:17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. How comforting a promise that is. In fact, Paul goes on to say, encourage one another, comfort one another, one another in this truth. Now that sounds good, but how can I be certain that he's actually preparing a place for me? How can you be certain that he's preparing a place for you? How can we know that this is possible? Well, as we'll now see, that's a question that was asked and answered in our text. Starting in verse 4. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through It's very common today to hear people say that there are many ways to heaven, that all paths ultimately lead to God. But the problem with that is every religion makes contradictory, exclusive truth claims, including Jesus Christ, who, notice, didn't say, I am a way, but I am the way to the Father, the one and only path to heaven which he doesn't just explain, but embodies. He says, I'm the personal way and truth and life. A traveler once hired a guide to take him across a desert, and to his astonishment, when they arrived at the edge of it, all the traveler saw was just endless, trackless sand, as far as the eye could see. Where's the road? He asked in terror. The guide responded, I am the road. The only chance you have of making it across and back home again is through me. And so it is with Jesus. He is the way. Because there's only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2, 5. And therefore there is salvation in no one else, Acts four twelve. Okay, but what makes this possible what makes Jesus so special that he is the exclusive way to God the exclusive way to heaven well we read on verse 7 to 11 Jesus says if you had known me you would have known my father also from now on you do know him and have seen him Philip said to him Lord show us the father and it is enough for us Jesus said to him have I been with you so long and you still do not know me Philip is framed around these seven signs of Jesus' divinity, these miracles with a message, supernatural works that irrefutably confirm he is the son of God, right? Like, like turning water into wine, healing the sick, walking on water, raising the dead. And yet, even his own disciples still had moments of doubt, like Philip here. And so Jesus reminds them of all the wonderful works of the Father that he performed to strengthen Philip's faith in him and in his promise he just made of this place in heaven. Okay, Jesus is the only one who can make such a promise and keep such a promise because he has shown himself to be one with the Father by doing the Father's he is the I am of the Old Testament. Something Jesus has been saying again in many different times, seven times in the whole Gospel of John, these I am statements. He is the one triune God of all who had revealed himself to Moses that way so long ago. He's the maker of heaven and earth, which means we can find comfort in his promise of his place. And be certain that he will keep this promise. But also, we can find comfort in the promise of his power, which we go on to read about, first of all, in verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Now, that is a startling statement, isn't it? Greater works than you? Really, Jesus? Just put yourself for a moment in the shoes of these 11 disciples or their sandals who over the past three years had witnessed jesus do unprecedented miracles things never done before and now he's saying you know what you're gonna do even greater things how can that be what can that mean i'm sure that's a question we're all wondering about on our minds well Jesus cannot mean that we will do more spectacular, supernatural works. Because what could possibly be greater than raising the dead, which Jesus just did? Now, yes, these 12, the disciples whom he's originally talking to, they will do signs and wonders to authenticate the gospel message. And we'll see that in, in Acts. But the greater works they will do must be their proclamation of that message to a far greater audience as Jesus' apostles, his authorized witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth as he commissions them in Acts 1, 8. A greater work that church we're still a part of as we send and support missionaries who are taking Jesus' message of eternal life to the unreached of every nation. You know, only a few came to faith in Jesus throughout his limited ministry and all just in this one small place. But at Pentecost, when the church began and the Holy Spirit came upon uh, the believers, 3,000 in that one day came to faith in him. And since then, millions and millions more from every tongue, tribe, and nation through the greater work of global missions. Now that right there would have caused these troubled hearts to rejoice and find some measure of rest. Jesus is saying something greater is coming. Yes, Jesus would soon be going away. But that meant that they would soon be going to make disciples of all nations. The mission they've been training for all along. Which now extends to us as well as believers and followers of Christ today. And so, friends, when we are fearful of the future, we too should rejoice and find some measure of rest in this work. We do well to remember that we have an eternal, unstoppable mission that's greater, far greater than any trial or trouble we might face that might come our way in the days and months and years ahead. And as we, as we focus on that greater mission, what does it do? It helps us to take our eyes off of our worries and rather fix our eyes on the world that needs to hear about Jesus. The world we have been commissioned to go and reach for Christ. You know, when I'm feeling anxious or fearful, I find nothing more calming, more comforting, more correcting than getting wrapped up in ministry and mission. Just immersing myself in a, in a sermon or immersing myself in praying for the lost or immersing myself in, in finding ways that I can reach out to those in need. Because when I do that, it sets my heart on something so much more significant than the struggles and sufferings I might be facing now or might be facing in the future. It sets my heart on something that will have an eternal spiritual impact in the end, whatever the future may bring. But how can then weak, doubting, sinful, fearful people like you and me do such a great work? I mean, that's the question I have. Like, that's great, but as I think about the future, I I see, man, I could really mess this up. I already fail in this so many ways. What's to say I can... Continue on. I'm sure that's what the disciples were thinking, especially since they'd soon be alone. Jesus would be gone, back to he who sent them, and they'd have to fend for themselves, right? Wrong. Jesus was not going to leave them and leave us to fulfill this mission on our own. No, he was going to continue to help them help us in his physical absence. First, through the power of of prayer. So verse 13, whatever you ask in my name this I will do that the father may be glorified in the son. If you ask me anything in my name I will do it. Now that's at first glance a bit of a startling assertion. It almost seems like Jesus is writing a blank check to his disciples when it comes to prayer. I mean, notice the comprehensive language, whatever you ask and ask anything and I will do it. So does that mean that if we ask for something silly, something selfish, even something sinful that Jesus is going to answer? He's got to give it to us. Well, no, that's obviously not what he meant. Because notice he says that he answers prayer only when we ask in my Name, Which doesn't mean tagging that on as some kind of, you know, magical incantation. As long as I say in Jesus' name, he's got to do whatever I say. But rather, it means by my authority and according to my will as my representatives in the world. That's what praying in Jesus' name means. And that's why Jesus later connects abiding in his word and answered prayer. In chapter 15, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Because if we're abiding in his word, we'll know his will. And if we know his will and ask according to his will, we can have confidence he will answer us. So praying in Jesus' name, it's, it's kind of like being someone's power of attorney. You can, for example, go and ask the bank for money, but you must do so by this person's authority and according to their will the person that you represent so if that's true then when we pray in jesus name what does jesus will well again it's that we would do this greater work of mission specifically to he says the glory of god that was always jesus motivation for everything he did Fulfilling the mission God had given him in order to magnify God. And if it's our motivation in prayer, we can also be certain then that he will give us what we need to see that mission fulfilled. And what a comfort that is when we consider that Jesus is no longer physically with us. It's a great comfort to the disciples Later on in chapter 16, verse 22 to 24, Jesus ties this together in another instance. He says, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be We can accomplish this greater work of mission, even in Jesus' absence, through the power of prayer. But that's not all. We can also do this. He also gives us the help we need through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, verse 15, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that, oh, sorry, (laughs) that's 16, Uh, 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So let's just think about this for a second. Putting ourselves again in the the shoes of the disciples. After three years of living with Jesus, God the Son, and then now being told he was leaving, what could be more comforting than the promise that he will send God the Spirit to live in you forever as your helper, your counselor and comforter in life? How comforting that would be. I mean, really, it's, it's the greatest gift that Jesus could have given his disciples. a gift he continues to give us today. Because unlike the Old Covenant age, when only some were empowered with the Spirit for specific ministry and mission, now in the New Covenant age, all believers are indwelt with and empowered by the Holy Spirit who permanently lives in us. And the main way that the Holy Spirit who's in us helps us to fulfill our ministry and mission is by teaching teaching the complete truth of Jesus that was given to the disciples and is now given through the disciples and the Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures to us. Something we see later in verse 25 and 26 where Jesus says, These things I've spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. And later in chapter 16, 12 to 15, he'll say essentially the same thing. Now, I sometimes wonder if we maybe underappreciate this great gift of the Holy Spirit and this great gift of Holy Scripture that now completes with the New Testament guides us in how exactly we can live for Christ. You know, for all those years, God's people didn't have this supernatural strength in their hearts, nor did they have the completed scriptures in their hands. But we do. And what a great comfort that is. Especially considering what a great work we've been called to. Us, fragile, fearful people. It's like the difference between making firewood with a handsaw and a chainsaw. One, all the power, all the work is in you. The other, all the power is in that saw. And you're just using that power, yielding to that power for it to do your work. In a similar way, we make disciples no longer by the powerless law but by the powerful spirits walking in him. Yet even more comforting is the fact that through the indwelling Holy Spirit Jesus goes on to say we can see him and know him and live in him and love him more fully than ever before. More fully than even being in his physical presence as we enjoy intimate fellowship with him and with the Father through the Holy Spirit when we have loving obedience to them. We see this in verse 18 and on. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who Sent me. So, though Jesus is no longer physically among his disciples, it doesn't mean that he left us as helpless orphans. No, through the Holy Spirit, he continues to manifest himself to us and make his home in us. As we walk closely with him, keeping his word, and that might be the greatest comfort of all, we come to know. Him, God the Father, through faith in Jesus Christ. But then as we follow him, we experience this deep, abiding fellowship like never before. It's Such a great comfort. It's like the the security and serenity a child feels when mom and dad are home. You know what that's like when you were a kid? Well, in a similar way, as Christians, we experience great comfort knowing God makes his home in us. And he's he's renovating us. And he's furnishing us for mission. And he does that work increasingly the more we love him and have loving obedience walking in his ways. And so we can have comfort in the promise of this power working in us. But then finally, we also can find comfort in the promise of his peace. As we read in verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So the world is full of advice about how to experience inner peace. I mean, just Google it and you will find countless articles that have titles like Six Steps to Serenity or Five Factors for Fighting Fear or Ten Proven Principles for Inner Peace. And they will most likely tell you, ultimately, to, to stop thinking about negative things that feed your fear and instead focus your attention, start thinking about positive things that produce peace in you what they'll ultimately have in common is that the source of peace then is you if i just follow these steps every day if i just focus hard enough on these things if i just listen and and do what some other smarter more peaceful people tell me to do then i won't be afraid today now that can certainly be beneficial but it will inevitably prove insufficient. Because when fear takes over, following even the easiest steps is impossible. And that natural peace that we make for ourselves, it will quickly fade away. What a far cry that is from the supernatural peace that Jesus has left us and gives us. An all-sufficient peace within ourselves that comes from outside of ourselves. From the one who controls the future and has all authority over all that is in this world. Something that Jesus will come back to at the end of chapter 16, verse 33, when he says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart I have overcome the world. How comforting that must have been to Jesus' disciples as they faced a future without him. His cross, essentially what he's saying here, is not going to be a great defeat, but a great victory over Satan and this world, which means if they continue to trust him, then they could prevail in his peace. Something he encourages one more time as the chapter comes to an end. In verse 28 to 31, You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. In other words, those who love Jesus might wish he hadn't gone and was still physically here with us. But we should really be happy. He is enjoying far greater glory with the Father in heaven. Verse 29, And now I have told you before it takes place, so when it does take place, when he leaves, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So one more time, Jesus tells them what's coming. So when it does come, again, they might believe. They might continue to trust in him and trust specifically in his promise of peace, overcoming fear with faith which is something I'm sure most, if not all of us, have personally experienced before. Entrusting ourselves, entrusting our fears and our futures into his strong hands through prayer until we experience the promise of that peace that, as Paul says in Philippians 4, surpasses all understanding. Listen, if you're a believer in Jesus, he has promised you that supernatural peace peace and he will give it to you if you ask him in faith and believe in his promises this is his will this is his testament to you i love how d.l moody once explained this years ago to his church in chicago he said perhaps you have thought that no one ever remembered you in a will well if you are in the kingdom christ remembers you in his he willed his body to joseph arimathea He willed his mother to John, and he willed his spirit back to his father. But to his disciples, he said, my peace, I leave that with you. That is my legacy. Now, they say a man can't make a will that lawyers cannot break, but I will challenge them to break Christ's will. Let them try it. If he had left us a lot of gold, thieves would have stolen it in the first century. But he left his peace and joy for every true believer. And no power on earth can take it from him who trusts. A wonderful, memorable way of just bringing home again the truth, the thrust of this text. That Christians can find comfort in the promises of God when we are facing a fearful future. By turning to and trusting in the promise of his place, the promise of his power, and the promise of his peace. No matter how troubling the future might seem. And so church, are we doing that? Are we turning to his promises? Are we trusting in his promises today? Or do we forget them and try fighting fear on our own, only to fail? On my last birthday, I received a special coupon from one of my kids that said one free coffee and donut and i could claim it anytime this year well when i got it i was immediately reminded that there were half a dozen of similar coupons i had got the year before on my birthday but i put them in my nightstand totally forgot them and now it was too late so they had a a year expiration i had these six special promises that i could have used any time but i never claimed them because well they were out of sight and out of mind, and I think we often do the same with the promises of God that are ours in Christ Jesus. You know, they're in our Bibles, and so we, we see them now and again as we're reading God's word. But most of the time, they are also out of sight and out of mind. And so we tend to not use them. We forget about them. And when we find that fear, fear of the future coming up within us, instead of clinging to those promises, claiming those promises, trusting, believing in them, we try to work it out on our own. And so what I want to do now in closing is just encourage us all to take these promises and in a sense take them out of our Bible and put them right before us so that we can remember them and we can use them. They're right there when we need them and we're struggling with fear, which is why at the bottom of your sermon notes I have the three verses with these three main promises for you. Cut them out, put them somewhere visible, and remember every day These promises. So when you are experiencing fear, you can overcome it by faith. Faith in these precious promises of God that bring comfort, that allow us to not be troubled in our hearts. Let's ask the Lord to help us with that. Father, we thank you for these promises and how precious they are. And we just ask that you now help us to stand on those promises. As the hymn says, the promises that cannot fail when the howling storms of doubt and fear assail. By the living word of God, I shall prevail standing on the promises of God. Let us stand on those promises and therefore live without fear, but with faith in Jesus so we can fulfill the greater work of mission he's given us. We pray this in his name.